Hello and welcome to the When to Jump podcast. And for the second straight week, I am not your host, Mike Lewis. In case you missed it last week, Mike has been under the weather lately and needed some time off to rest his voice and recuperate. So I'm Alex Abnos. I produce the show and I'll be filling in for Mike in the meantime. This time around, we're celebrating Small Business Week with a supersized show featuring three people that took jumps from comfortable situations to start small businesses of their own. Now, Mike conducted all three of these interviews over the last several months, and we're really, really excited to bring them to you here. All these stories are really different, but they all show that starting a small business isn't really taking a small jump at all. We'll kick this off with Steve Fox, who left a career as an editor to start an urban mini golf course. Yeah, you heard that right. I'll let Mike take it from here. What's the trick to a hole-in-one in mini putt? Well, one might say cheating, but of course, we know no one ever cheats at miniature golf. <laughs> it's, you know, a, a well-designed hole actually always allows you to have, you know, some way of getting a hole-in-one. It's just a matter of getting the angles right and getting lucky. Tell us a little bit about your old life. Uh, you were editorial director at PC World. How does miniature golf come into play? It sounds like this was something that you had a long held passion for. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd been an editor for many years. And so I was at PC World. I was at CNET. Uh, I was at Omni Magazine for eight years back in New York. So none of those seemed to particularly relate to miniature golf. Um, though I, I had played miniature golf as a kid uh, growing up in Queens, uh, played with my family and, you know, had always loved it. But I, I can't claim it was a passion. But uh, sometime in the 90s, my wife and I were scouting around to do something on Valentine's Day. And we said, I know, let's have a party. What kind of party? I know, let's have a bring your own whole miniature golf party. So a bunch of people showed up. We, we invited our friends, people came by, they, they built little structures and it was a lot of fun. And there may have been some drinking involved uh, and, and, and eating and putting. And uh, it was great. And then we said, let's, let's do this again. So we did it a second year and then we did it a third year. And every year it sort of doubled in size and in complexity. And eventually we got to a point where people were building these amazing miniature golf, uh, they were like kinetic sculptures of some sort. Uh, many of them quite, quite funny, some of them you know, political, many of them conceptual. And there was some sort of new interesting art form was being created, though that was never our intention. We just wanted to have a party. So that's kind of the, the genesis of all of this. You know, after having done maybe, you know, 12 or 13 of these, we, we eventually stopped giving the parties because they were just taking over our lives. And we were known as that crazy couple that, that turned their house inside out. We had, we had holes in the walls that were put in so you could put in upstairs and the ball would come out downstairs. So that's, that's dedication, don't you think? Um, but we said, okay, we're, we're done. This is, this is crazy. We, at this point, we had two kids. It was just, it was, it was too much. But while this was going on, the backdrop on all of this is that you know, I was in publishing and I'd been doing this for 35 years and I was just watching this industry constrict and it was depressing. Uh, I, I did have that sense that at some point I would probably have to lay off the whatever was left on staff and then be laid off myself and then what exactly was I going to do? And there I was in my, in my 50s. And my wife, she said to me, why don't we just move to the middle of nowhere and open a miniature golf course? And that there was one part of that which was very attractive to me, the, the second part, which was, and open a miniature golf course. The moving to nowhere 
it didn't really do it for me. But the economics, as we were trying to think it through, didn't really suggest that you could have a miniature golf course in an urban environment. The, you need a lot of space for mini golf, and rents are very expensive. There's a reason why there are no mini golf courses in, in San Francisco or most other actual urban settings. It, the numbers just didn't work. And then I said, well, let's add a cafe, and that didn't work. Maybe we could sell beer and wine. It started to look a little bit better. The sort of aha moment is, you know, once we put in a full-scale bar and then uh, add the idea of a restaurant, all of a sudden, it's like, bing, 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 bing you know, this maybe could possibly work. Nonetheless, I, I had never done anything like this before. Uh, you know, I had always gotten a paycheck from somebody and I actually enjoyed getting a paycheck from somebody. <laughs> it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. And um, the idea of having to do this from scratch was, uh, you know, frankly, terrifying. And where are you in life? You said you're, you're mid-50s, you, you had two kids, was it? I mean, you, this is not exactly the time that most people think, okay, I'm going to leave that steady paycheck I've always known to start a mini golf restaurant and bar. Right. Most people are thinking, eh, let's try to sock away a little bit of more money because, you know, at some point, <laughs> we hope, we'll, we'll be able to retire. So I'm living in San Francisco, again, not, a, not an inexpensive place. I am, at, at this point, I'm still working in PC World and sort of the middle of that year, I finally managed to convince myself that in some way this business plan might, might actually work. And so I announced to my boss and my staff that I'm going to be uh, leaving the job, you know, in two weeks or whatever it was, to try to open a miniature golf course. That is the kind of thing that, that gets a lot of people thinking that perhaps you need therapy or <laughs> uh, immediate intervention, you know, because it, it's not like, oh, I'm going, to, I'm going off to edit, you know, some other some other venture or do whatever. No, I'm going to try to do something that no one has done. And so what happened next? I started looking for a space uh, in San Francisco. And ultimately, I found a spot where I, I looked at it and I said, yeah, that's it. That's the spot. And then I start raising money. And the raising money part, uh, I think, was the part that I had the greatest fear about because I'd never asked anyone for money uh, and, and here figured out I was going to need to raise, you know, something like a million and a half dollars, or that's what I thought at the time. Uh, turns out, note to self and to others, things will always cost more than you think they will, um, often a lot more. However, uh, you know, I went out, I started with my network of people I knew, uh, people I had worked with, people who had been to the mini golf party. You know, eventually it took quite some time. But I was able to, uh, to raise enough cash so that um, each day we could pay the people who were working on the whole designs and, and building and put it together in that way. I quickly hired a general manager, a guy who had opened other restaurants before, because the main thing was to recognize where I did not have expertise, which was kind of a, a fairly broad <laughs> number of things. <laughs> Here's where I have no expertise. Uh, everything I'm doing. And so, you know, so I found a general manager and then I found a chef and the chef, I was very, very lucky because he was at that point in his life where he was ready to do this. And he was not put off by the fact that he was going to be leaving a fine dining place to go run the kitchen of a miniature golf course. I mean, <laughs> which is no small point yeah, because right. I'm sure there are chefs who would say, no, no way. I don't belong in a place with golf balls and pins and putters. Exactly. And so describe, you know, that first day of opening. It seems like you went through 
more than your fair share of obstacles and hurdles and, and your own, you know, course of action to just get this off the ground. What was that like? And, you know, what surprised you? Yeah. First off, I mean, I would say terror was the primary feeling that, that pushed me. And really for the last month, as we were heading towards opening, uh, we were running out of money, all the holes were breaking. So I was, I was filled with fear. And in fact, the night before we opened, I went to my wife and I said, I'm really sorry. I have screwed it up. This is a disaster. We had refinanced our house, put as much money as we could in there. And I was thinking, well, the kids will never go to school and I'll be, uh, who knows what I'll be doing. And she said, no, 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 this, it's going to be great. And uh, we were opening at four o'clock that day on a Monday. You have no idea if anyone will show up. And, you know, about 3.30, 3.45, I look outside and there is a line. There is a line of people and they are going to the corner and around the corner. I, I'm stunned, but I have to admit that for the first six months, I kept on expecting that at some point uh, they will wake up and recognize, oh, you know, this, this doesn't really work or, or well, we've, we've tried it and, you know, that, that was enough. We did it once. That was fine. Uh, that has not happened. <laughs> and how long have you been in, been in operation for? So we're, we're at the three and a half coming up on four years. So three and a half years now. Uh, business is not abating. Uh, you know, we have certainly have our challenges, but it's, it's going well. Did you ever believe this would happen? No, no, not, not at all. Uh, I mean, in fact, you know, I grew up in a sort of comfortably middle-class uh, family in, in Queens. My dad was a dentist. You know, he got out of the army and immediately went into practice and he continued to work until he was 87. And that's what you did. You, you found something and that, that was kind of it. And my assumption always was I would have, you know, some fairly conventional position and I would do this until at some point they gave me the, that, uh, I guess it's a gold pen you get at the end and, you know, I could toddle off into the sunset, but I have to say it's been, it's been great. It's, it's wonderful. I, I so enjoy doing what I do and coming to work. It's a, it's a joy. Do you think it would still be worth it if it didn't work and it flopped and you, the plan just didn't come through and the GM and the chef didn't, didn't back it and no one came and piled up in a line outside the door on the first day? Well, so as a life journey, absolutely. The person I am now would not recognize the person I was then. And I think that would be true even if this had failed. You know, I, I was in a, in a place in my life where um, I had stopped sleeping because I was just very unhappy about things. I've always, uh, uh, you know, struggled with weight and suddenly I was losing weight at an incredibly rapid pace without trying. It was sort of cool, but um, <laughs> completely surprising. And I think it was, you know, I was, I was dealing with what was, you know, uh, must have really been some, you know, kind of depression without recognizing it because I was just unhappy about where I was in life. And I think, um, that when you get to that point in your life where you can, uh, if, if I could have taken a step back and looked at myself then, I would have realized, well, this is a, an unhappy person, someone who's no longer fulfilled by what's going on in, in his professional life. And I think that um, meant that doing this, this crazy, incredible, even seemingly irresponsible thing um, was quite liberating. And, and helpful to me, I think, as a, as a person. 
Steve, I mean, what advice would you give to others as you think towards, you know, you know, reflecting back in your, uh, you know, three years in of a jump that on paper might not have looked like it was going to work? Uh, I would say the main thing is recognize what you don't know. Uh, you know, don't, don't get this idea that, you know, uh, I, I understand everything. I've figured it out. I've read a book. Um, and so, you know, make sure that you have, uh, you've got support of, of people who really know what they're going and don't, don't shy away from bringing in that expertise from, from outside. I'd say that's, that's, and then the other piece is just, well, be bold. Steve Fox, Captain Fox, uh, the mini putt man of America and owner of Urban Putt. Check him out, urbanputt.com. And if you come through San Francisco, promise you it's worth a visit. Steve, thanks so much for visiting today on the When to Jump podcast. Thanks. It was great being on. We'll be back with a couple more small business jump stories right after this. Okay, welcome back to the show. Up next on our special Small Business Week episode, we have Mike's interview with Elizabeth Haig. It is a story that proves that sometimes small business success is preceded by failure. But don't be mistaken, that failure is really, really important. Here's the interview. All right, so you have been amazing in getting, you know, when to jump off the ground as far as sharing your story to me in several different ways uh, around what it means to jump when, when things don't go as planned. I'd love to spend this conversation talking about that because I think it's so important to talk about when you try for something and it doesn't go as you thought and why that actually might be okay. Can we go back to, to your story and where it starts? Oh, yeah, absolutely. People, they don't ever want to talk about failure, but failure is such an integral part of success that you have to fail in order to become really, really good at what you are passionate about. With my story in particular, jumping originally and then falling flat on my face was such a good experience for me because it shaped my next jump and making that jump successful and like learning from all the things that I did incorrectly and just making a more beautiful journey out of it. Right, right, right. And you, what was your hope when you were leaving school? My hope when I was leaving school is that I could support myself um, doing something I was really passionate about. And at that time, what I was really passionate about was making art. Um, I had a degree in antiquated film photography, um, not even digital. And I just really fancied myself an intelligent, artistic, well-spoken artist. And I, I, that's what I wanted to do with my life. Amazing. <laughs> it didn't work out that way. Yeah. But you first got a, a quote unquote real job, right? You were, a, it was a very bizarre job, right? Yeah. The first job that I ever had was a secretary at an eminent domain, like it related to like law uh, firm. And it was just me making labels and sticking them on manila folders and just kind of wondering where I went wrong with my life and, <laughs> and all that good stuff. And I mean, I think when you're like 21 or 22, you're kind of starry eyed, you think, oh, there's so many, you know, opportunities for me. But it's really hard to actually see those when you're like, I, I'm living in crushing situations. Totally. So what do you do about it? I fell into some freelance opportunities that ended up paying me really well at the time. And I, I kind of got the idea that, well, maybe this is a, a career path for me. Maybe I could do this. And so I, I pursued that relentlessly. And that was, that was freelance photography. 
Yeah, that was uh, freelance photography. We did a lot of I did a lot of weddings, and I also um, ended up doing a lot of commercial shoots. Believe it or not, I did like Harley catalogs and stuff, which actually was pretty cool. I was like, I could do this. I can totally figure it out. I'm living on nothing, anyways. You know, there's nothing I could really lose. I'm I'm under a mountain of debt. Let's make this work. You know, like I could totally do this. <laughs> and then what happens? Uh, So I had no funding. I had no business model. Um, I was just a kid, really. Um, I didn't have any experience in running a business. And what ended up happening was I was really passionate about something. I was actually really, really good at being, you know, a photographer, a creative director, you know, telling stories visually. And I, I just, I went for it. I, I broke up with my boyfriend. I got rid of my apartment. I ended up kind of like moving home and seeing if I could like make this kind of work. And, uh, I, I, I couldn't, I didn't, it, it wasn't great. (laughs) I totally failed. And at the time, was it like, this is the end? At the time I was like, God, I just want to make this work. What do I do to make this work? I just, it was more like, what am I doing wrong? And it was the mystery of it all. I just couldn't figure it out. And it was infuriating. You're, I guess like, where do you turn when you, when you realize like, you know, things aren't working? Yeah. And that's a really good question. Um, so I'll say this like strange analogy, somebody, um, explained to me once. So when you don't, when you're not as um, experience in the world. When you're younger, you are faced with a problem and you don't really know how to tackle it. So it's kind of like you have a board of nails and your ob- objective is to hammer these nails in, but you don't have the tools, right? You don't have a hammer. You've never even seen a hammer in your entire life. So what do you do? You like kick the nails, you punch the nails, you like slam something, a rock on the nails. You like try to make it work. So you just try to figure it out until you're able to like learn what a hammer is, right? (laughs) It's like you do everything you can to accomplish what you need to accomplish until you have better tools to actually get done what you really need to get done. So being really motivated to make my life work when I was younger, I was like, there's no way I can fail. I have to do this. Being confronted with a failure. Okay. What can I learn from this? I have to know that there's a tool somewhere. There's gotta be something that I can like figure. What do I do next? So ultimately all of the failure that I experienced, I just try to cobble that together to keep me moving forward and motivate me. And so that's essentially what I ended up doing and how, how I kind of got to where I am right now. (laughs) Persistence. That's so cool. So it was like partly what toolkit pieces am I missing? What, what, what hammer do I need to go develop? And then also what do I really care about most, which is, you know, not living with mom and dad. Absolutely. And I would never have had these experiences if I hadn't failed miserably. And I think failure is part of the journey. It has to be part of the journey in order to become, you know, the thing that you really want to become or, you know, be really successful. Like you talk to any extremely successful person, they don't live a charmed life. They've failed a million times. You know, I think it's important to dissect that and talk about it. What happened after that? So what was the next thing you did? Because that was a pretty unique job you found right afterwards, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when I failed, the next decision I had to make was like, I just need income to get in. And I really need to make sure that whatever I do is something that I actually enjoy doing. Cause I'm not going to get stuck back in a crappy job that just absolutely sucks. It sucks my soul out of my body. Like I'm not going to do that. At the time I was really lucky. I got picked up on like a freelance gig for, uh, doing like holding props, 
um, on a Harley shoot, believe it or not. And they were like, we have this like really small, it doesn't pay that much, but you get to be on the marketing team. We know you, you're like passionate about being a photographer. And I was like, I don't care. Yes. Just give me the job. Like I want to learn, like I want to do this. And lo, I stayed there like two, three years, maybe a little bit longer. I had this tiny job. I wasn't important, but I just like absorbed everything because I was surrounded with people that had been doing this for like 20 years. And I got so good at developing visual storytelling that I was headhunted by a dot-com and that dot-com transitioned me into the career I have now. It seems like that just added such a layer though to your story. Like if things worked out in your photography business, that might've been fine, but you're only where you're at now because, because of the survival mode, right? Yeah. And you know, honestly, it's like, that's a skill you learn and you build and you carry with you because as a business owner, you, that the survival instinct never goes away. Like you could have a really, really bad year and have, and be like, you know, 50,000 in the hole and just be like pulling your hair out. And then the next year, turn it around and make like triple six figures. right? Right. That's, that's the, that's what it is. So if you don't have like the experience of what it's like to be really, really down. I mean, you're not going to survive in this game. And even now it's, I mean, describe a little bit about what you're doing today. And I think it doesn't seem like it's always up and to the right in terms of growth and success, even though you're running a a successful business, right? Yeah, absolutely. I own a company called uh, Wildcat Echo. It's brand development. And some years we, uh, some years we're like killing it. And some years we stay pretty much the same or we don't see much like huge growth. Um, we're a profitable business, which I'm super thankful for. We're a boutique team. We keep it small. We keep it agile because I'm, you know, I'm just ready for anything that could happen. I'm ready for exponential growth, but I'm also like, you know, I'm, I'm being mindful and thankful from where, where we came from. What do you do differently having had a failure in your back pocket to learn from? Yeah, that's such a good question. You know, I think ultimately at the end of the day, once you like get through that failure, you have stronger, better tools to prioritize what is the most important and prioritize what's the least important. Because there's so many things trying to grab our attention, especially um, I'm not sure if there's people out there like thinking about starting their own business, but they're like intimidated. They're afraid to. They're like, oh, I'm listening to this girl talk about how like hard it is. And now I'm like, oh, God, you know, it's it's a wonderful journey, but you have to be like really right with yourself to know, okay, today, these are the five things that are the most important thing for me to do today. And these three other things I can do tomorrow. And before my failure, I didn't have perspective on that. I was more like, well, everything's important. And also nothing's important because I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And so what would you, I guess on that, on that point, what would you tell others who are listening to this? I mean, I think a lot of our listeners are folks who are thinking about jumping. We hear from people who are like, I'm planning it next week or coming up or I'm still at work and wondering what I'm going to do, but I, I want to do something. You know, as they prepare to jump, what would what would you tell them? Don't let the fear of failure hold you back because the reality is, is that when you're going to be laying on your deathbed, are you going to say to yourself, Oh yeah, I'm so glad I worked in a shitty corporate job. I was so glad that I I was miserable. I'm that was just the greatest and now I'm dying. Like what a great life I had, you know? <laughs> like no no one's ever going to say that. Or are you going to sit on your deathbed and say like, 
I'm so glad I, I ate life. Like I just grabbed life and I just took a huge chunk out of it. And like, I did it. I did everything I set my mind to. I have no regrets. I tried it. And even if I failed, I did it. I was there. I showed up and I truly, truly lived to my fullest potential. And I know my fullest potential included a lot of failure. So, and that's totally fine. I have that legacy to pass on. Like, I think that's way more motivating than, you know, being like, well, I'm scared. So I guess I'll never try it. Like you have to do, like if you're burning up to do something, you have to do it. Don't, don't let the fear of failure hold you back because you'll definitely regret it. Honestly, to wrap up, I would say how cool for you to be able to talk for the last X many minutes on failure and messing up and not doing something successful, because that is what I think when to jump is all about is being honest and authentic and, and showing that it's okay to, to try and fail. And it might even be a good thing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Go fail, get up, fail again, and then get up and be amazing at whatever you're doing. <laughs> Elizabeth Haig, thank you for joining me on the Wind to Jump podcast. Thank you so much. This is a blast. Last but not least, on this special edition of the When to Jump podcast, we have Mike's interview with Nate Chambers. Now, Nate started a gym in San Francisco, which is what he currently does, but that jump to run that gym, even though he's been interested in fitness for a while, was not the first or really honestly the most extreme jump that Nate made in the course of his career. His is a super interesting story, and I'm happy to close out the show with it. Here's Mike Lewis's interview with Nate Chambers. And now let's rewind a bit because I want to go back to your own jump story before we get to the gym and everything that's going on there. You weren't always working in fitness, not even close. It sounds like something you liked, but but certainly wasn't your day job. Can you give us a scope of what life was as an engineer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was working as a mechanical engineer and then b built my way up to program manager and engineering manager for a tech hardware company. Life there was the same as a lot of people in the corporate world. It was just a b very busy work day, work week. And for me, it was something that I enjoyed the the fact that you could be a part of designing something and building it, but it wasn't something that I was totally passionate about in that industry. It was an interesting environment um, in the day-to-day, -day, but I was involved in fitness um, every day, either before work or after work, going to a, a little small gym similar to Rourke, but down there. And that was what really kept me sane and kept me motivated and passionate, it kept that fire burning. And it wasn't starting a gym that was your jump when you started to think through things you wanted to do outside of work, right? It was it was a backpack company. It was a backpack company. Uh, what I ended up designing was this backpack that could help people stay active on the go or with these busy work schedules. So it had a spot for a pair of shoes on the outside, dirty clothes compartment, a laptop or tablet, a foam roller so that you could travel with the gear that you needed or going to work right after training or have everything with you to go get a workout in after the workday. And I actually got to that idea after being involved in sports as I was growing up and then getting into the workplace and seeing how little people were moving and exercising. And I started to implement little things with my team like every 30 to 45 minutes we'd have a timer that would go off and we'd get up and do some squats or some push-ups. Um, encouraging my team and reminding myself that, hey, let's take our phone call meetings on a cell phone so that you can walk around outside and 
and be active while you're doing the things that you're doing in the workplace. And with that, then I was like, well, what if we had a product that would help people take it to the next step? And that's really where this backpack idea came from. And you were still working full time. It wasn't like you were saying, I'm going to go start a backpack company. You were, you were clocking in at nine, leaving at five, right? Uh, earlier and later than that. Sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, um, what, what in San Francisco people are starting to call a seven to seven instead of the nine to five is something like that. And I was working a full time job managing a team and then had this idea and uh, found a way to, to actually produce this backpack. Once I had all of that in place, I was like, man, this is an opportunity that's too good to pass up. Uh, I've been pursuing this dream for a while. I wasn't ready to fully commit to it before I had the supply chain in place and the product in hand. So I was doing all that while working that day job. What was the next step? It sounds like there was a drastic one, right? Yeah. So once I had all of these pieces in place to be able to launch this backpack into the marketplace, I needed to be able to fund it. And to do that, there's a couple ways that you can go about it. The usual route of raising money from outside sources, um, whether it's family and friends or taking on seed money and being able to, to push it in a big way. But what I really wanted to do was not create a new job for myself. I wanted to have something that could take me towards my longer term goal of living the lifestyle that I wanted to lead, which was not, again, working a seven to seven, whether it was for somebody else or for myself in a way, but you've taken on outside money and you have to report back and make sure that you're hitting all your goals. And so I didn't want to do that route. And what I figured out was that the my biggest monthly net, the biggest amount of money that I was putting out every month was my rent. So I ended up packing all my stuff up, putting it into storage, keeping the essentials in my car and moved into my car to help fund this backpack launch. And what were the essentials that you had to keep in your car and what car was it? <laughs> uh, it was a Volkswagen Jetta, so a little four-door sedan. And the essentials were a duffel bag full of workout clothes, a garment bag for slacks, collared shirts and all that for my work attire, a couple pairs of shoes, and a laptop and some toiletries. And that was basically it. Like, describe, I mean, what was the first night like? Yeah, the first night was, was pretty intense, uh, just emotionally. I was sitting in the front seat, had reclined it back and put up a sunshade to block out any headlights or anything else and try to pretend like there wasn't a person sleeping in the car. And I was laying back and it's just super uncomfortable, couldn't stretch out my legs and just could not get to sleep. So it was really emotionally hectic that way. A lot of self-doubt started to creep in. Why am I doing this? My parents were right. I definitely should not have moved into my car. This is a crazy idea. But right when I was about to say, you know what, I'm going to go get a hotel room, I thought back to myself, well, I've gone through this massive effort of clearing out my apartment, ending the lease, getting into my car, getting mentally ready for that. So why don't I just do whatever I can to get a little bit of rest tonight, make it through the evening, and tomorrow, if it was just the worst thing ever, tomorrow night I can get a hotel. And I woke up in the morning, I'd made it, I got a bit of sleep, it wasn't the best night's sleep, but I did get some rest, I went into work, no one knew that anything was different, I dressed the same as I had been dressing, I 
drove to work. I didn't chat about my night's sleep in any of the prior nights. So it was just a normal thing. By the end of that next day, it was as if nothing had happened and I started to forget about it and really realized that, you know what? I'm not the center of the universe in general. We all are the center of our own little worlds. And you know what? I can make it through if I just break this up into the little things that are achievable goals or little milestones. And that that's what that first night and next day were like. I was going to the beach to shower. I was still going to my gym every day. They didn't have a shower there, but it, again, didn't bother me. The beach was close by. It was cold showers, but I'm living in Southern California where a cold evening is like <laughs> 62 degrees. I mean, it could be far worse. Well, I was working at Starbucks. You know, as soon as the sun would come up, I'd wake up, shower, go to Starbucks, work there until I headed into the office. Um, after work, I'd go to the gym, shower, work at Starbucks, go to sleep. And I mean, it became a normal routine. Basically, seven months of living in my car allowed me to launch the backpacks and get that ball moving, but also save enough money to live on my own for 10 months without a, another job or income. And the idea there was that I was going to be pursuing the backpacks and whatever else would help me towards this longer term goal of living for myself, leading the lifestyle that I want to lead, being healthy and active and pursuing my passions. So I was able to get to the point where I was ready to quit the job. So I pulled the cord on that, left a big safety net position. And this was actually one of the more scary <laughs> jumps that I did because moving into the car, it was kind of exciting and unique. You know, it made for a cool story. It's something that we're talking about now. But the next step of quitting the job and then moving on to a couch in San Francisco at a buddy's place and just trying to work and bring in money however you could with the backpacks and anything else, that's where it's less sexy and it's just, it's old fashioned hard work. And so you go to the air mattress, you move to San Francisco, and as with most jumps, it's not necessarily a, a storybook ending. Yeah, it, it wasn't, it didn't work out exactly how I had hoped. So we've launched the backpacks, they're selling, but they're not selling at some incredible rate. It's a lot of work going to marathons and obstacle course races and things like that where we're putting up a booth and, and working those, chatting with people. And, and it's the hard work, the non-glamorous side. It's it's unsexy part of this jump where it's just hard work and not really working out the way that I'd hoped. And as I get a few months into this, you start to see the savings that you've built up dwindle the sales aren't taking off how they could or you'd hoped and you realize that all right we may have to start thinking about a plan b and you're still working out and, and you had learned about this this jim jones concept around the same time right well yeah so i'd actually heard about jim jones which is this training group out in salt lake city that are really well known for training the actors from the movie 300 and they train a bunch of top athletes and they do a training certification program and I ended up meeting my now partner James White from South Africa and he'd already gone through all of this but he was looking at opening a gym in the US. The general manager out of Jim Jones knew that I had this entrepreneurial background, had quit my job and may be interested in doing something different and so we got connected, got to chatting and 
decided that opening a gym in San Francisco would be a really, really cool way to move forward, both for James and work gyms in South Africa, growing out to a second country, a second continent, and for myself, um, a way to continue my passion for empowering people to be better through fitness. We opened our doors in April 2016. It took us 10 months to find a lease or find a space to lease for the first space. And at this point now, we've made it through our one-year anniversary, uh, over 115 members, about 40% of whom come five to six days a week. So it's an awesome group of people. And we're trying to sign a lease to open our second space here in San Francisco, bringing more people on board. And it's, it's just a, an awesome thing to be a part of. Couldn't be happier doing what I'm doing. It's so cool. I love the the fact that it hasn't all been smooth and that this wasn't necessarily what you intended to do when you were, you know, uh, at your glass making company down in Ventura. And yet, yeah. you know, look what happens. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, one, yeah. I mean, with, with that in mind, like one thing that if, you know, people are listening and want a way to, a, a takeaway, something that they can, they can use on a daily basis for whatever they're trying to do yeah. is, is the idea of like figure out what your longer term goal or your purpose is which I know sounds crazy and hard, but if you can figure out where you want to be in three years or five years or 10 years, even if it's a really big lofty thing, if you know what that is or the idea of what it is, you can compare the stuff that you do every single day to that goal. And if the stuff that you're doing is taking you closer to that, that is awesome. Like put your full time and energy and passion into it. But if you're doing stuff that doesn't take you closer to it, then understand the the cost of that so it's essentially a cost benefit analysis of are the things that i'm doing on a daily basis making me better or taking me closer to what i want to be doing or are they a distraction and if they're just distraction then that could be fine but you have to know that it is and what that cost is well nate chambers i really appreciate uh you joining me today i appreciate work gym san francisco and i love the story of your jump thank you for sharing it thank you so much mike i appreciate it That'll do it for this Small Business Week edition of the When to Jump podcast. The show is produced by me, Alex Abnos, with help from Katie Ferguson and Becky Celestina. The senior editor for Macmillan Podcasts is Alyssa Martino. You can hear this and more of our other great shows at us.macmillan.com slash podcasts. Now, in addition to all the great interviews that Mike does all around the country with people that have made jumps, we also get a lot of voice notes from you all, the listeners, about jumps you've made in your own lives. And some of them are about starting your own small business. In the spirit of the show and in the spirit of Small Business Week, here are a few of our favorites. My name is Charlotte McGee, and my jump is called Whist Away Surprise Travel. Clients choose their international region and budget, and I plan them a curated surprise travel adventure. My jump officially started after I had really been jumping for years, planning travel for everyone I knew in my spare time just because I loved it. If your heart and your gut is telling you it's right, listen. My name is Randy Phipps. I am a publicist located in Toronto and founded the company RP Communications, my namesake. And I was actually working for the government for the Ministry of Transportation or the DMV for 11 years of my life, but I always knew that wasn't what I was supposed to do. And then shortly after working at a PR agency, I left and 
and then I started my own agency and here I am today and I'm doing well and I'm so happy I made the jump. Hey there, it's Megan Parker, co-founder of Within Meditation. My jump happened just this year when I left Dropbox to open up a drop-in guided meditation studio in San Francisco's financial district. The fear of failing has yet to go away, but I've realized that I can be fearful and do it anyway. If you have a jump to share, even if it's not small business related, please do share it. Hearing those is one of my favorite parts of producing the show. Record an audio note on your phone and send it to jump at macmillan.com. For more information about When to Jump, visit whentojump.com and you can follow them on pretty much all social media at When to Jump. Your host, Mike Lewis, will be back in a couple weeks. But until then, I'm Alex Abnos and thank you for listening.